Two men in a balloon were caught in a fog, dropped down near the ground to see where they were. They lowered right over a man walking along a country road and yelled down to him, Where are we? The man looked up and replied, In a balloon! A few minutes later, one of the men in the balloon commented to the other, He must have been a politician because his answer was accurate but totally useless. That's the view, I'm afraid, that many Christians have about doctrine. And yet, as we've seen over these last several weeks, what we believe really does matter. You know, if you're new this morning or haven't been around here for a while, we've been doing a study of the Apostles' Creed. Now remember, a creed is simply a statement of belief. This particular creed has its origins into the second century. In, in really in a question-and-answer format that was used for uh, candidates for baptism. It's been, for the most part, in this form since the 4th century. So let's look at what we've considered so far uh, up through last week. The Creed states, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Now, the creed ends its affirmations about Jesus with some very important observations about him and his work. And so it goes on to say, He rose on the third day from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, from thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. So let's just take that apart and, and uh, examine each one and look at the apostolic teaching that provides the foundation for each of these statements. And in each we'll see the implications of these declarations of belief. The creed says, the third day he rose again from the dead. On this Easter Sunday, churches all around the world are celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Historically, we know with certainty these facts. Jesus was crucified and certified dead. His body was laid in a borrowed tomb. Three days later, the tomb was empty. What happened to the body? Various explanations have been made over the centuries. All have glaring to obvious deficiencies, all except one that Jesus was truly raised from the dead. The evidence for resurrection is substantial for the objective mind. John Singleton Copley, better known as Lord Lyndhurst, he lived from 1772 to 1863, was recognized as one of the greatest legal minds in all of British history. He was the Solicitor General of the British government in 1819. Attorney General of the British government in 1824. Three times High Chancellor of England. Elected in 1846 High Steward of the University of Cambridge. Thus holding in one lifetime the highest offices which a judge in Great Britain could ever have conferred upon him. When Chancellor Lyndhurst died, a document was found in his desk among his personal private papers, giving an extended account of his own Christian faith. 
And in a previously unknown record, he wrote this, I know pretty well what evidence is, and I tell you, such evidence as that for the resurrection has never broken down yet. So what then is the implication of Jesus' resurrection? I think more than anything else, it's this. God's justice was perfectly satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus. In his first letter in the New Testament, the Apostle John writes that Jesus himself is the propitiation for our sins. The word propitiation means satisfaction. You see, the resurrection was absolute proof that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient. It was enough to satisfy God's justice. If not, Jesus would still be in the tomb. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you would still be in your sins. And so that's why Paul the Apostle would write in 1 Corinthians 15, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we've hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So what does it mean for us if we believed in Jesus? It is that we have died in him and have been raised to newness of life. This is the full gospel. Dead to sin, alive to Christ. We're no longer under the judgment of sin. We must no longer uh, live by the dictates of the sin. On top of that, this resurrection of Jesus also assures us of a future resurrection. Because he lives, we too shall live. Paul goes on to describe our future hope that one day we too shall experience a resurrection. Uh, Paul says that we're going to be changed in the twinkling of an eye. The perishable will put on the imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. And the immortality we put on is because of the victory of Christ. What is Paul's so what of this great hope? He goes on to write this. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. The third day, he rose again from the dead. And then it says that he ascended into heaven. Luke opens the book of Acts with these words. In the first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. For 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus was preparing the disciples for what was to come. And the foundation of that was that he was alive, that his death had satisfied the justice of God, and his resurrection was proof positive of that satisfaction. Luke ends his gospel writing about Jesus' departure from this world. He says, Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. 
What's the implication? Jesus' work here on earth was finished. It was completed. The purpose for which he had come to execute God's redemptive plan had been fulfilled. So what does it mean for us? It's this. Jesus' work continues through us. And with Jesus' ascension into heaven comes a commissioning of the church, of believers in Christ. I want you to see three things that Jesus says in his farewell words to the disciples because these three things have direct bearing upon those of us who believe in him, who are his followers in the 21st century. The first is a calling. Jesus went on to say, listen to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Jesus says that we are to be his witnesses. Now, notice that the emphasis is on the being rather than the doing. Jesus says that I'm calling you to be a witness it isn't so much witnessing, though being a witness includes witnessing, but it's that our life, our conduct, our character, our countenance would bear witness to the fact that we know this Jesus who was raised from the dead. It's part of our calling, it's part of our commissioning. Then there's a command from Matthew's Gospel. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Now, the principal verb in those verses is to make disciples. As you are going, make disciples. How do we do that? Well, he tells us we make disciples by baptizing believers as a public testimony of their identification with Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. And we teach people to pay attention to, to keep, to obey the teachings of Jesus and of those whom the Holy Spirit would lead to write the New Testament. Now, this process of making disciples is multiplication, or maybe we would better call it spiritual reproduction. Someone has written, the church today is raising a whole generation of mules. Now, before you get bent out of shape over that, um, you need to know that mules have many redeemable qualities. In fact, you need to know that this is especially true when you compare it to horses. Now, if you're a horse lover, just don't tune me out here. Just, just bear with me a little bit, because a little research into this yields some, some real important facts. Mules can endure extreme temperatures better than horses. Mules are by most accounts noticeably more intelligent than horses. Mules eat less and rarely have hoof problems, unlike horses. Mules live longer than horses, on average 18 years versus 15 years. Mules are generally more productive when it comes to work than horses. A mule can carry a 50 to 60 pound pack up to 50 miles in a day. As a matter of fact, about the only problem with mules is that they're almost always sterile and therefore incapable of reproduction. Durable? Yes. Smart? Yes. Inexpensive to maintain? Yes. Hard worker? Yes. 
Unfortunately, though, most mules are the end of the family line. It doesn't go any farther. And maybe that's what somebody meant when they wrote a comment that what we were doing is producing and raising a whole generation of mules. You think about the church is full of hard workers. We teach classes. We serve the physical needs of others. We organize various activities. We visit. We even write letters and cards, maybe. We do a host of other things. The vast majority of them, good things, helpful ministries. But here's the question. Are we reproducing? Are we sharing what it means to be a disciple with others? To help them on their journey, that they might know him, that they might enlist in his work. The mission of the church given to us by Jesus is to go into all the world and make disciples of others. It's entirely possible that we can work at real hard at good things and yet still fail to get the job done. If we're not contributing to the Great Commission by making disciples, we're not doing the job completely. If we're nothing more than a generation of infertile mules, then at least from a human perspective, we're on the verge of extinction. We have a calling. We have a command. I mean, we also have a promise. Jesus finishes his commission with this promise, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. And Jesus promises his presence to be with us in this task to which we've been called. Jesus completes his work on earth, and then he commissions us, the church, his followers, to continue his work. Well, the creed goes on. And it goes on to say that having ascended into heaven, Jesus sat down at the right hand of the Father Almighty. Now, this might not sound so significant. We put maybe just as one of those phrases we just kind of gloss over. But it is of utmost importance in our doctrinal understanding. We don't tend to think much of what Jesus did after the ascension or what he does today. Now, there's not a lot of information in the New Testament, I'll just confess that. However, what we do find has to do with position. Jesus is seated at the right hand of God the Father. So first, the implication of this statement that Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. Jesus fully completed the work for which he came, this work of salvation. The book of Hebrews in the New Testament gives a lot of insight into the significance of this and the work of Christ in fulfillment of the Old Testament. So I want you to focus in here on the teachings of Jesus and his priestly ministry. So look at this from Hebrews chapter 10. And every priest, talking about the Old Testament priests, you know, members of the Levitical tribe, stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. This is the significance of that statement that Jesus is now seated. His work is finished. He finished the work that God required. So what does that mean for you and me? You cannot do what Christ has already done. In Jesus' high priestly work, accomplished on the cross of Calvary, the work is done. That means there's nothing you can do to earn or gain salvation. Christ already did it. If there's one sin yet unpaid for, 
If there is one sin not covered in Christ's death, then that would require Jesus to go back to the cross again. They were all there, once for all. So what is Jesus doing in heaven? Well, I can tell you with certainty that one of the things that he's doing is he's praying for you. Isn't that an amazing thought? Jesus, the eternal Son of God, goes to the cross for you, and now he's praying for you. He's interceding before the Father on your behalf. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, much more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Jesus forever advocates your salvation before the Father. He constantly is reminding the Father of the divine grace which has secured your salvation. It's all part of the assurance that you can have in salvation if you've believed in Christ. Well, the creed now declares what Jesus himself taught, he's going to return. And so the creed adds this final thought here about Jesus and says, from this throne where he's seated, Jesus will come to judge the quick and the dead. Now, some of you may be thinking, the quick and the dead. Is this some old Western movie, you know, quick on the draw? No. The word quick simply means living, the living. So Jesus is going to return to judge the living and the dead. Look what Luke tells us in the book of Acts. Right after Jesus promised the power of the Holy Spirit, gave his commission that we we're to be witnesses of him, then we read, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus is coming back. Not just for redemptive purposes, but really for the purpose of judgment. And the scriptures tell us that Jesus' return will actually be in two phases. The first is when he returns to take the church out of the world to be with him in heaven. This is called the rapture of the church. This is the great hope of every believer in Christ. Jesus will return in the clouds. He'll gather all believers, living and dead, and they'll be taken up into the air to be with him forever. Paul writes that in a twinkling of an eye, we'll be changed. We're also going to be given a new resurrection body. That's, I'm, the older I get, the more I look forward to that. <laughs> but that body's going to live forever. It's going to be like Jesus' resurrected body. But there is another part of his return. The Old Testament prophet Zechariah speaks about the day of the Lord, referring to Jesus' return in judgment. And so he writes, Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you. I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. Then the Lord will go out to fight against those nations as he fought in times past. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will split apart making a wide valley running from east to west. Then the Lord my God will come and all his holy ones with him. Jesus will return. First, to take all true believers out of this world, to be with him forever. And a second time, to judge those who've rejected him, those who survive a great tribulation. So here's the critical question. 
the most important question. Are you ready for Christ's return? If you happen to be here this morning, maybe you've been in church all your life, maybe it's the first time you've walked into a church, the application is very clear for you. You must repent of sin. simply means to turn away from sin and to believe in Christ and his sacrifice on the cross for you and in your place. And his promise is that if you will believe in him, trust in him, turn your life over to him, he will save you. He will forgive you. He will give you eternal life. If you're already a believer in Christ, well, there are three things I want to leave you with this morning. First of all, we should order our lives in response to God's grace. John the Apostle makes this linkage in his first epistle when he writes, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Second is we should live expectantly for Christ's return. This doesn't mean that we put our heads in the sand and that we ignore life around us, but it does mean and has something to say about priorities, about our focus. Paul writes in his letter to the Colossians, speaking of our position in Christ, and says, if then, or really we ought to read that since, since you've been raised up with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Order your lives, live expectantly, and then third, take the commission Jesus has given us seriously and become involved in making disciples. That means, first of all, that we ourselves are becoming disciples. Are you growing in your knowledge and understanding of, of God? Do you find yourself increasingly trusting God in your daily life? Are you feeding yourself from God's word to get the knowledge that's necessary for spiritual growth? See, it's both being and doing. Both are involved in God's plan of becoming a disciple. And so we declare along with the creed, I believe that Jesus ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I want to close this morning by sharing something that a friend gave me. He knew that I was preaching the series on the Apostles' Creed and thought that it might be interesting, which it indeed is. It comes from a sermon by Dr. James Kennedy. And he said this, in the Apostles' Creed, it says that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, was crucified, dead, and buried, etc., from one event to the other. There's no mention of his teachings. Christianity is not a religion based on the teachings of Jesus. It is based on Jesus Christ himself and what he did for us. No one in the history of the world gave more beautiful and powerful teachings than Jesus. No one gave better sermons than Jesus. But following his teachings are not the way to becoming a Christian. He said, I am the way. You can follow the teachings of Muhammad and be a Mohammedan. You can follow the teachings of Buddha and be a Buddhist, etc. But you cannot simply follow the teachings of Jesus Christ and be a Christian. You can be a Muslim and not know anything about Muhammad. You can be a Buddhist and not know anything about Buddha, etc., 
but you cannot be a Christian without knowing Jesus Christ. Have you put your trust in Christ? Only through him alone can salvation be possible. Can you be forgiven? Can you have eternal life? Now, if you're thinking about the whole Christianity thing and whether it's new or old to you, investigating, questioning, you know, we have a place for you to learn and ask questions. Chris talked about it earlier. Starting point, 9 o'clock next Sunday morning. Come and be a part of a journey of exploring what Christ has for you and what he might mean for you. Bring your questions. Well, let's review where we've been so far over these weeks. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. Jesus Christ is the focal point of the whole creed. His relationship with his Father Almighty in the redemptive plan of salvation in the church that we're going to look at next week and throughout eternity. What a, what a concise statement of belief. It's not everything, but you can describe and define the essence of what you believe in a creed like this. Well, I'm going to invite the worship team to come as we close this morning, and would you pray with me? God, thank you that you have not left us clueless about the meaning of life. Thank you that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us through the Holy Scriptures. And thinking back to that second century of these early church leaders and Christians trying to figure out what does it mean to be Christian? What does it mean to believe in Jesus and God and the future? Thank you that these words have held the course and stayed the course for all these centuries later. Lord, may we be people that know what we believe and why we believe. And God, we know that it's built upon the resurrection of Christ a sacrificial death for us, and then the grave could not hold him down. And so thank you that we worship a risen Christ who leads us in daily life for his sake and in his name I pray, amen.